The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I'll be reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 this morning. May we hear the word of God and receive it with meekness for the salvation of our souls. Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself. A people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth contained within it, for its its display of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would send forth your word with your power this morning to accomplish your purpose. And we thank you that you will. Show us the glory of your son and conform us to his image today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we begin a three-week series on the topic of sanctification. How do we grow in practical godliness as followers of Christ? Now, it's very common in the church to think that the gospel is for non-Christians. You need it to be saved, but then once you're saved, you grow, you are sanctified through hard work and obedience. But as common as this thinking is, it is wrong. The gospel is just as important, just as necessary for the believer as it is for the unbeliever. The truth is, most people's problems... Most people's struggles with sanctification are a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to believe and grasp it through and through. Martin Luther says, The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. Now, I might not say it, Like that. Some of you might think that's what I do, but I do want to proclaim the gospel this morning, and I pray that God will grant us the grace to believe it and understand it and apply it to our lives. When we come to Paul's letter to Titus, we see that he makes it clear that the path of sanctification, the way to grow, 
and our practical expression of holiness is not to urge people to pull up themselves by their bootstraps and work harder, but rather to teach them to rely on the grace of God. And the first truth that we see as we look at Titus 2 this morning is that sanctification is the work of God. It is by grace. We just asked the question in our catechism, what is sanctification? A simple, short answer might be something like being made more like Jesus Christ. The process of growing in godliness and holiness. We also looked at justification and adoption. And we were told that those are acts of God's free grace. Acts of God's free grace. The word acts means it's a one-time event. It's once and done. We are declared righteous, made right with God at one time. We are adopted into God's family at one time. It's once and done. But sanctification was described as a work of God's free grace. It's not simply a once and done event. It's an ongoing process whereby we are made more and more like Jesus Christ. But it is a work of God's free grace. Not of human effort. See, the key point I want you to see and understand is that sanctification is a work of God. Just as much as justification and adoption are. It is by grace. Notice what this passage says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us. Grace teaches us. And what does it teach us? Verse 12 tells us it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. It's describing the process of sanctification. It's the grace of God that teaches us. Sanctification is the work of God. The grace of God that brings salvation also teaches those who have been saved to live in a new way. When you are saved, you are automatically enrolled in the classroom of grace. Sanctification is by grace. It's the grace of God that teaches us. Now, I'm hammering this point because we are so prone to a pharisaical way of thinking and living. If you have children or grandchildren or if you've ever been around young children, you know that one of the first words they learn to say besides no is a phrase something like, I do it myself. Let me do it. And that independent streak that we're all born with only gets worse as we get older. You know, we we understand that salvation is by grace. But then the temptation is to view our sanctification as a matter of our own hard work. We grow through our own efforts. We are performance-oriented And the temptation is to fall into a performance way of living, of viewing our relationship with God. Our bent is towards believing that our sanctification is based on our performance. That it's a matter of how hard I try or how successful I am at performing certain rituals and disciplines. This is not a new problem. It has been going on since the time of Christ. In the early church, Paul confronted And addressed this problem in his letter to the Galatians. See, in that church, people were advocating living by the law of Moses. 
which would be a good thing. It, it came from God, right? But they were saying, we live by that law. We become Christians by grace through faith in Christ, but then we keep going by following the law. Listen to how Paul addresses that issue in Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal through human effort? Paul could not have been more clear. Our Christian lives began when we received the Spirit by believing in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Not when we finally managed to observe the law. It's foolish to think that we can now take over and finish the job through our own human effort. Our Christian lives began when we heeded the simple call of Christ to repent and believe the good news. Have you heeded that call this morning? To repent and believe the good news. That's how we begin. It's also how we continue. We grow in our Christian lives as we continue to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. As we understand and apply the truths of the gospel to our lives. Sanctification is by grace. It is the work of God. It's something that God does. About a month ago, I went with the Young Boys program here from our church to Camp Hebron for the father-son camping trip. One of the activities that we did on that trip was climb to the top of Peter's Mountain. Now, when you get to the top of Peter's Mountain, on the other side, there's this rock outcropping that you can walk out on, and it overlooks the other side of the mountain. And if you, and there, and if you would walk off that rock or fall off that rock, you would die. Now, somebody thought it was a good idea to take all these young boys to the top of this mountain, to that rock. Now, have you seen these young boys here on a Wednesday night? Have you been in the gym during the meal? These boys are maniacs. They run around like crazy. They're just young boys enjoying the life God has given them. And I love them. And I was just like you when I was that age. In fact, some people think I'm still just like you. But when we got to the top of that mountain, Gunnar Armstrong said, Troy, okay, you go to the front and make sure everything's okay. So I go to the front and I'm standing at this rock. And if you think for one second that I was going to let these boys wander off to their death, you are crazy. Instead, what I did is I picked the spot far away from the edge and I said to the boys, do not go past this spot without your father. And they listened. But why did I say that? I said that because as much as I loved those boys, as much as I was concerned for their safety, for their survival, for their lives, their father was intensely and intimately more concerned. Their father's eyes would be fixed on them like a hawk. My son Luke was there. 
my eyes were on Luke. Because if they weren't, I might lose him. If you know Luke, you know what I'm talking about. How much more will not God make sure that his children do not wander off to their deaths? Because, beloved, that is what we would all do if it was left up to ourselves. If he did not keep coming after us. If he did not, not only save us by grace, but sanctify us by grace, how much more will the God who gave his own son finish what he started? He's not going to leave it up to us now. He's given his son for us. He's going to make sure we make it. He didn't give his own son for us just to let us go off on our own. He's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that his work is completed, to make us like his son now that we're his children. It's the grace of God that teaches us, that sanctifies us. You know, the the law, the law is a teacher too, but it's easy to learn the wrong thing from the law. If you're using it as a means of attaining righteousness, then if you're good at keeping rules, you'll become proud and self-righteous like the Pharisees. And if you're not good at keeping rules, you'll become guilty. You'll feel guilty and be filled with doubt. You'll wonder what's wrong with you. But the law was meant to show us our failure. It's meant to teach us our weakness and drive us to Christ, the grace of God in the gospel. Sanctification is by grace. If you think it's by your own efforts, you're in the wrong classroom. It's like trying to learn math by going to an English class. It won't make sense. You come out of that class thinking something like, what, two plus two is a direct object? It doesn't make sense. It's frustrating. It's confusing. You need to get in the classroom of grace. So I want to dive in there for a minute. And I want to use an article from Elise Fitzpatrick to help us consider exactly how the grace of God in Jesus Christ transforms and teaches us. And as we think about that, we need to know that the grace of God in Jesus Christ includes all aspects of his work. It includes his incarnation. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. His incarnation. It includes his sinless life. God made him who knew no sin. He was a precious lamb without spot or blemish. He always did what pleased the Father. His sinless life. His substitutionary death. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It includes his bodily resurrection. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen from the dead. It includes his ascension and his reign. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it includes the return of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 2, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. The gospel includes all aspects of Christ's work. Now, here's how the whole gospel message might impact me when I'm struggling with my own unbelief, idolatry, and sin. So she gives us this example. Let's say I'm having people from church come over to my house for dinner, and I realize that I'm missing some key ingredient for this meal. You can make up one yourself. For me, it might be chocolate or something. we got to have it. We don't have it. So I need to run out to the store and make sure we have it before our guests arrive. There's not much time, but I figure I can, if I go right now and make it real fast, I'll get back in time. So I jump in my car, run out to Oregon Dairy, grab what I need, go to the quick express checkout line, and find myself stuck behind a guy who obviously can't read. He didn't read the sign that says 10 items or less. And so instantly, I'm angry. This is going to mess up my plans. So now, how do I respond in that moment? There's a few different options that she explains for us. Option number one, if I'm a happy moralist, if I'm good at keeping rules, if I'm a good Pharisee, I'll assure myself that my anger is righteous. Because the person in front of me is not obeying the rules like I am. Now, I'm going to remain angry about it, but I'll feel better. And I'll think I'm better than the guy in front of me. If I'm a sad moralist, if I'm not good at keeping the rules, I'll recognize my anger is not righteous because I'm not loving my neighbor. I'm angry because of my own idolatry. Now I'll feel both angry and guilty. But now I will despair Because it seems as though I will never change. Grace teaches us to respond in a new way. As I remember and believe the gospel. And she walks us through each aspect of it. Because of the incarnation. Jesus Christ knows exactly what it's like. To live in a sin cursed world with people who break the rules. People like me. I am a rule breaker. But Jesus has loved me. He has experienced every trial I face. He is with me. He sympathizes with my weakness. This understanding of his love in the face of my sin drains my anger at my rule-breaking neighbor. I can love him because I have been loved and I am a rule-breaker, a sinner just like him. Because of the sinless life of Jesus Christ, I now have a perfect record of loving my neighbor. He perfectly loved rule breakers. This record of perfect love for my rule breaking neighbor is now mine. In God's eyes, it's as if I was only kind and loving to the guy with 50 items in his cart. Knowing this relieves my guilt. Even though I continue to fail to love, Jesus' perfect record is mine. Because of his substitutionary death, I am completely forgiven for my sin. Even the sins that I seem to fall into at the slightest temptation over and over again, God has no wrath left for me because he poured it all out on his son. He is not disappointed with me or irritated at me. My sin does not threaten him or my relationship with him. It has been taken care of and he welcomes me as his beloved son. Because of the resurrection and the justification that it brings, I know the power of sin in my life has been broken. Yes, 
I have failed again, but I can have the courage to continue to fight sin because I am no longer a slave to it. This replaces despair with faith to wage the war against my selfishness and my pride. Because of Christ's ascension and reign, I know that this situation is not a mere chance happening. God has orchestrated it for me in the classroom of grace so I will remember him and be blessed by the gospel again. He is ruling over my life, interceding for me right now. I am not a slave to chaos or chance. He's my sovereign king. And I can rest in his loving plan and rejoice in him. And because of his promised return, I know that all the doubt, all the injustice, all the struggle will one day come to an end. This line in the grocery store, my plans for dinner isn't all there is. That is the great news of the gospel. And if I'm humble enough and I'm willing to do the homework that Teacher Grace gives me, I can now go home and share with my family and guess how Jesus met me at the grocery store. And we can rejoice in his work on our behalf. Now you might think, that's crazy. How can I talk to people about Jesus meeting me at the grocery store? But it's not crazy. It's biblical and it will glorify God and it will encourage his people. I'm always telling my own children and the young children, uh, the youth here at church, to tell people about Jesus. Tell them what they know about Jesus. And some of them say, well, who do I tell? I don't have any non-Christian friends. And I say, tell me. I need to hear about Jesus. I think about Troy all the time. I am prone to be a Pharisee. I need reminders of the gospel. Tell me. We need to remember Jesus Christ and the gospel every day, even in the mundane things of life. Especially in the mundane things of life. Seeing Jesus and his glorious work is the only power that is strong enough to transform us into the likeness of Christ. And that only happens by the grace of God. Sanctification is by grace. The grace that brings salvation also teaches, sanctifies. It does not do one without the other. God never saves his people and then leaves them alone to continue in their immaturity and their sinful lifestyle. He has promised to complete the work that he has begun. God's grace actually accomplishes its intended purpose. It does not only save, it results in a new people who are eager to do what is good. So you can be encouraged, child of God, because God is at work in your life. If you are a child of God, God is at work In your life, right now, today, every day, God is at work in your life. Your spiritual growth, your sanctification is not left to your own initiative. It's not dependent on your own wisdom to figure out which areas you need to grow in. And that's a good thing because you might be blind to your biggest area of need, the biggest area of sin in your life, but God is not. He is the master teacher. He is at work in your life. He is personalizing the curriculum just for you. 
He knows exactly what you need, when you need it. And he is working in your life, using everything to teach you, even the hardships of this life you live. He is the master teacher. Every true student he has ever had will complete the course, including you. Now, this might be hard for us to believe because it's the opposite of what we so often see and experience in life. If you come to my house, my house is like the Hall of Fame of unfinished projects. If you stand and look at the front of my house and look up to the roof, you'll notice we have half a gutter there. If you go around to the back of the house and look at the carriage house, if you look closely near the top, you'll notice that the paint line stops a few feet from the top. If you come inside the door from the garage and move the strategically placed dog crate and dryer, you'll notice we ran out of tiles before we finished the floor. If you go into the kitchen and look closely at the cabinets, you'll notice that we painted over the old design and didn't quite get it all sanded off. If you go up the back stairs, you'll notice a hole that hasn't been spackled quite enough times yet. And if I keep going, I'm not going to be allowed to go home. (laughs) But this is the world we live in. Unfinished projects everywhere. I hope I'm not alone. I hope there's some other fathers, husbands out there like me. Uh, But I know I'm not alone because what is Langster's infamous for what? The, The road to nowhere, the go path. This is the world we live in. Projects that don't get finished. But not with God. He finishes every project he starts completely, fully, finally. Everything he starts, he finishes. He is at work in your life. I recently saw a teenager with a t-shirt that said, Please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. I love that shirt. We all need that shirt. God is not finished with us yet, but he will be one day. And he is at work in our lives. Now, you've got to understand this. See, our only hope is in the gospel, in Jesus Christ. Since God is at work in our lives, you know what that means? Since he's going to complete the work he's begun, it means it doesn't matter what your struggle is. It doesn't matter what your struggle is. No matter how difficult you think it is, you will overcome. You will win in the end. God has guaranteed it. So whether your struggle is with same-sex attraction, as Tucker preached about a few weeks ago, or whether it's with lying or gossip or being disobedient to your parents or greed or idolatry or envy or anger, it doesn't matter. We are all infinitely guilty before an infinitely holy God. And our only hope for any of us, for every one of us, is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the grace of God seen in his Son. But oh, what a hope it is, a certainty. See, once you respond in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, once he comes into your life, there is no stopping him. He will not fail. He has already won, and you will win Progress will be made in this life. Perfection will be attained in the next. It is a guarantee. Your struggle will be over no matter what it is. No matter how much Satan accuses you, it will not last. It will not condemn you. You can say, 
along with Martin Luther, these great words he wrote in a letter. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there shall I be also. God is at work in your life. He will complete what he has begun. One more word of encouragement in closing, and that is this, from verse 13. Something better, something glorious is coming. Something better, something glorious is coming. Verse 13, after Paul has instructed us that the grace of God teaches us, he says it's teaching us while we wait has a sense of eager expectation while we wait for the blessed hope, the hope that brings blessing, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Something better, something glorious is coming. About a year and a half ago, we gave our kids a surprise for Christmas. We were celebrating our twins' birthday, Lydia and Ella. They, they were born December 19th, so we were having a birthday party close to Christmas, and we had one more gift that we wanted to give to all of our children. If you don't know my family, we have five kids, so we had one more gift we wanted to give them all. It was going to be their Christmas gift for that year, so we gathered them all in the living room with this box wrapped on the table. We explained to them, this last gift is for all of you, and this is going to be your Christmas gift. And so we had the video camera rolling. We said, go ahead, open up the box. And they opened the lid off the box and they went crazy. We had surprised them. We had given them a puppy for Christmas. They went wild, cheering, running around, making all those girl noises. Ooh, ah, so cute. Grabbing the little bundle of fool from one another, saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Even one, one of them had this sweet move, like swiped it out of somebody else's arms and shoved off the way like this. I have it on instant replay. I can check it out all the time. They went crazy. And in the midst of all that celebration, one voice shouted out, is it fake? (laughs) To this child, what was happening was almost too good to be true. He wanted to know if it was real. Something so wonderful had come. could hardly believe His eyes. Beloved, something better, something glorious is coming, something that seems too good to be true, overwhelming in how good it is. God himself in the flesh coming again for his people. This promise is repeated. It's looked forward to throughout the Bible. Paul encourages us to look forward to this in Philippians chapter 3 when he says... Our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies and make them like his glorious body. The angels proclaim this coming. When they said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, 
after Christ had ascended into heaven, they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come. He will come. Jesus Christ gave us this promise. In John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. First John tells us that we will be like him because we're going to see him as he is. No more sin. Sanctification complete. Something better. Something glorious is coming. This is the truth of the word of God. It's not something I'm making up. It's what God has promised to his people. Something better. Something glorious is coming. Chris Tomlin has a song that we sometimes sing at our retreats or Wednesday night youth groups. It's called, I Will Rise. And it expresses the hope we have of Christ's glorious return. It starts out like this. There's a peace I've come to know, though my heart and flesh may fail. There's an anchor for my soul. I can say it is well. And the chorus gives us what that anchor is. It says, Jesus has overcome. And the grave is overwhelmed. The victory is won. He is risen from the dead. And I will rise when he calls my name. Something better is coming. Jesus is coming to call our name. I will rise when he calls my name. No more sorrow. No more pain. And the anticipation, the excitement builds up within the song. The music builds up within the song. In the end, there's a bridge that says these words, I hear the voice of many angels sing. Worthy is the Lamb. I hear the cry of every longing heart. Worthy is the Lamb. He's painting the scene for us from Revelation 4 and 5. For the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and the multitude of the heavenly hosts, the angels are singing, Worthy is the Lamb. One day, you will hear the angels sing with your own ears. Worthy is the Lamb. You will join in the chorus of the angels. Worthy is the Lamb. The day is coming. And as as incredible as that is, as amazing as it is, it is not the glory of heaven. Singing with the angels, hearing that wondrous chorus, is not the hope that we eagerly await. The blessed hope that we eagerly await is the Lamb that they sing of. The Lamb who is worthy. It is Him that we will see with our own eyes. It is Him that we will be like. No more sin, no cloud of sin blocking our vision. We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is in all His glory. Something better. Something glorious, someone glorious is coming. Some of you are suffering deeply right now. Maybe due to your own struggle with sin. And maybe as a result of someone else's sin. And you don't see how 
You're going to get through it. How? It will end. But know this. It will end. Something better. Someone glorious is coming. Christ is coming for you. For the final completion of his work. God himself, the faithful God, does not lie. He has promised. He will do it. The suffering, the struggle, it will end. And as bad as it may seem now, it will not even be worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus himself, Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, even more ever. It won't even be a distant memory. It will be gone for all eternity. Beloved, something better, something glorious is coming. Jesus is coming. Sanctification is by grace. He will complete the work he has begun. You are waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Is it? Real? Yes, it is real. You better believe it is real. And it will be far better, far more glorious than you could ever imagine. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and take us home where we belong. Let us pray. God, we long for that day. We long for that day. When our blessed hope, when, when our waiting will be over. When our glorious Savior will come. We thank you that that day is coming. We thank you for the truth of your word. Strengthen your people today in the midst of their sin and suffering. Give them the hope of the gospel. Help us to repent and believe the good news today, this day. To live for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name.